City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Oh, I didn't hear the promo. <laughs> we didn't have the promo, did we? It's City Limits and it's um, it's City Limits and it's Wednesday morning. It's the second Wednesday of the month and it's our energy day. I'm Kevin Healy. Uh, and there's Tullox over there at the moment pressing buttons. Karina's on the way somewhere. She's rushing in somewhere on a bike. And we've got Freya Leonard with us, who's the no gas person at Friends of the Earth. Freya, welcome to the day. Very good morning to you, yeah, Kevin. Okay. And we're going to talk later in the show because some weeks ago, in fact, during the break when I was having a break, but some shows didn't, the faux program interviewed you about the fact that uh, you, you, did, you said that gas is on its last legs and it knows it's had it, but that means it's going to fight back hard and it'll start coming up with a big PR campaign. And almost from the day you said it, I think you, your soothsaying was spectacular. Every well, day there's argue, they're saying, you know, we... we we can't live without it. Absolutely. It's this um, narrative overdrive that they've gone into in this sense of absolute panic about being on the rocks and, um, and knowing that they're about to be dumped by governments and consumers everywhere. And so they're just grasping for every bit of relevance they can possibly confect in the um, consumer population. And, and it's really interesting to see the panic in their eyes. Sure, I'm trying. I'm pouring myself a cup of tea. Do you want a cup of tea in it? There's a cup there somewhere. I thought we bought... Yeah, that's right. There you are. So, yeah, we've we've seen a number of different talking points emerging coming out of the gas industry in the last few months. Um, it actually started in earnest for them uh, last year, but it has been on a slow march from 2022... Uh, they're spending record amounts on marketing, although I note that last year their marketing spend did drop very slightly. But it's interesting to note that we have seen um, lobbyists increase in the parliament more than double over the period between 2022 and 2023. And we've also seen the number of marketing firms engaged by gas industries nearly double in the year between 2022 and 2023. So they've obviously been planning this attack for a while. Well, there was a full page out of the last day or so by AGL, in one of the papers, um, the Financial Review actually, uh, in which they talk about the fact that they're really, you know, we move on with them, they're moving on, they're doing all this stuff in renewables, etc. Just after they announced a record profit by selling gas, but... uh, um, You feel they've learnt their lesson? They are moving on? Uh, Uh, Well, I mean, their narrative is moving on and their narrative is trying to keep pace with the appetite of the people and that is an appetite for renewables. You know, Australia is now... um, Renewables are contributing more to the energy matrix of Australia than ever before. Uh, So they know that if they want to keep pace with what the public wants to hear, they have to shift their talking points. And we saw this writ large in September of last year when Appia changed their name from Australian Petroleum Producers and Energy Association to AEP, Australian Energy 
producers mm. dropping petroleum entirely. So they know that petroleum is on the nose. They know that people don't love it. Mm. And they're shifting even the name of their industry organisation to <laughs> try and greenwash themselves. If you don't like the name, you change it. Well, then, then, of course, when a, a nuclear accident in Britain, they just changed the name of the company, and that was, that was pretty smart. Yeah. Um, look, I'll, I'll leave you with one. Before you go, we'll try and get an answer to this, but it'll give you time to think because um, you probably need it. Uh, there, was a hundred, there was a glossy mag fell out about the 100 top business graduates and all the places they can go into and all these big companies advertising for business graduates. And they've got a young woman, um, Sophie, graduate process engineer, Wiper, saying, I'd like to play my part by leading people with empathy and humanity. And it then says, create a better tomorrow with our graduate program, Rio Tinto. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I'm giving you time, and Ines, you can try if you like, um, give you time to the end of the program to think of which bit of empathy and humanity you can think of that ever occurred from Rio Tinto. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's a poser. <laughs> yeah, well, well, good luck, but I'll leave you with it to, uh, till the end of the program. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's good. Um, also, uh, Woodside, which, of course, plays a bit of a role in gas. Mm. Um, it came out this week, Peg O'Neill, the head of it, uh, who got so frightened at a front gate a few weeks ago, and yes. it was a terrible thing for her. Um, and a few other people uh, from there... Uh, have said that uh, they can't possibly be tied down to this disconnect thing because they're a worldwide company with things happening all over the world 24 hours a day and it would be totally wrong for them to have to disconnect their their people because what if someone in Brazil or anywhere else in the world wants to ring someone here at 4 in the morning and that sort of thing? No, well... So... Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, won't somebody spare a thought for the struggling gas companies? Yeah, they say they need flexibility... Um, to, um, to do that. And in fact, um, Julie Fallon, who's um, resources head, it says here, uh, warned a right to disconnect could uh, cause challenges for companies working across multiple time zones, although she welcomed the decision not to impose fines on employers. But well, that's fair enough. Employees, that's fair enough, I suppose. You don't want to fine them for It is up. fascinating, though, isn't it, that they have seized on that narrative to pop themselves right there in front of the Australian public again. And it is a little bit like the, um, the mansplainer who just can't accept that men aren't at the centre of the conversation. The gas industry always needs to make sure that they're right there in front of your face being noticed, even if what they're saying has such a tenuous tie to the issue at hand. You know, it's just quite remarkable. Yeah, speaking of international, there was a, I mean, I meant to bring it in, but the, the book Cobalt Red that came out last year, mm. um, you know the book? It, no. It's, it's about the, um, the industry in, in, in um, the Congo, and it's, it's harrowing reading. It's not a, not a pleasant read, but it's an important read. Uh, and it's about the, um, the slave labour and kids being killed. But there's one bit where the bloke um towards out at a particular mine where apparently lots of kids get killed all the time and, and at the top of the chain of course a big company is making fortunes out of and the bloke says to the to the writer um will you go back and tell your people that our children are dying by the day so they can use their telephones mm. they can use their phones it's an interesting line mm. and, uh, mm. but i think it's um it's worth reflecting on because you know lots of well, lots of the arguments for renewables lead to can lead to 
further environmental problems at times. You've got to just kind of sort it out. Absolutely right. And while we're continuing mm. to take an industrialised approach to anything at all, we're going to see these problems continue. And that, that is just as true of renewables as it is of fossil fuels. Mm. So it will have a lower impact for the climate, but the climate isn't the only consideration that we should be prioritising. It's certainly mm. a major consideration, mm. you know. Um, those of us who are still looking our wounds from yesterday's storm will be able to attest and That's everybody right. else who's been tossed around <laughs> And the ebbs and flows of it chased me extremes. from Lawn to Melbourne. Literally, I, I was in the bus coming up, coming along back to Geelong, and I could see the outside in the bus. You didn't realise it, but the wind was extraordinary outside. But the real storm hadn't hit, and then the train. And I got home about half an hour, and then the storm hit Melbourne's, and the news said it was so. It went came through behind me and got me half an hour after I got home. Yeah. Good timing. Yeah. So, uh, but it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty incredible. But I mean, it was it incredible these days with climate change, of course. Mm, mm. And, yeah. mm, absolutely. Mm. But it is really critical that um, we look at how we're acquiring transition minerals, that we're making sure that renewables are in a closed loop system, that they're continuously recycled for as long as they possibly can be. Um, we can't just continue this throughput approach to energy systems. Mm. We need to really rethink the way we do things. We've got to think about where these transition minerals are coming from. We need to be putting R&D into renewable systems that are lower impact on the environment. We need to make sure, as I say, that they're continuously recycled, but also... Um, we need to really rethink that centralised energy approach of the, having these major industrial facilities that pump out energy across broad areas and instead look at small, modular, nimble, decentralised energy systems with interconnected batteries. It's really just the only way to go. And that is, you know, I mean, that was that was really brought into sharp relief again going back to yesterday's storm. Two transmission towers were knocked down at um, Loyang Power Station and it really just shows how fragile the system is when these major climate events happen. Whereas if we have lots of small standalone batteries, you're not going to see entire sections mm. of the state um, cut off power. You'll, you might have one or two localised outages, but it's not going to be anything on the scale that we saw yesterday. It was interesting, now you mentioned that, interesting this morning that um, Mountain, the energy bloke of Burberry is, Bruce Mountain. Um, he, um, he came out and said that um, because because the power went down, I'm going to have to use a lot more gas because coal's going to be in trouble yeah. in the next few days. And he said that, therefore, the prices will have to go up, saying that gas is far more expensive. So the gas industry keep telling us this is the transmission we have to have. Yeah. But are they, are they, in fact, telling us we have to have something far more expensive than we've already got? Well, indeed. And... Um and, and and we have seen power prices, like the actual cost of power production, energy production, fall in real terms mm. in Australia, but that's not being passed on to consumers. And yet every time there is a price rise, that is passed on to consumers. And this is another area that needs to be looked at and another strong argument for decentralised energy systems because then people are producing their own power and they're owning their own power and sharing within microgrids the energy that's produced. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was really it, – it's fascinating that Bruce did put that point uh, and really shone a spotlight on the extent to which gas power generation is a more expensive energy source. Yeah. Uh, it's not the transition fuel that the gas industry has been touting, and that's one of their main talking points lately. Uh, AGL, in fact, when they announced their record profit or their massive increase in profit last week, said that um, 
prices hadn't actually gone down and they weren't going to, which I thought was fair enough, you know, just let us know. <laughs> and of course, every time one of these mobs announce a record profit, they point out about we can see difficult headwinds in the year ahead. So just in case the workers think they should share in it or something, you know, mm. or they should, prices should go down. But they did announce, they already announced, even with the record profit, that this wouldn't mean prices would drop that was it, yeah. No, yeah. no, that's yeah. right. It's, it's really interesting the extent to which it just always all goes their way, you know. Uh, they don't pay tax. They still don't pay tax. They pay minimal royalties. Um, in fact, I was in a briefing with ExxonMobil last year and right at the end of this briefing on decommissioning some offshore pipelines in the um, Gippsland Basin and they said, you know, do you have any other questions? And I said, certainly how much tax has ExxonMobil paid in the last 10 years? And there was this horrible, strangled, awkward silence followed by, well, we pay royalties. And I went, well, of course you pay royalties, but not much. I mean, compared to other countries, you pay almost nothing in royalties in Australia. Um, We pay income tax, they said. (laughs) You don't pay income tax. Your workers pay income tax. I mean, they're clutching at straws to try and make themselves look like a normal business, but they're just not. They operate in in a rogue environment. Um, as rogue actors, and they really need to be. I mean, it it it, it has to be time that we called bull, bull dust on their um on the way they operate. With the Barossa proposal with Santos, where they and for that was a dreadful court decision, oh, by yes. the way. But oh, um, yeah, that aside, following it, Santos is saying how they just love the indigenous community, and they're putting aside some sort of fund, which will reap them a hundred million dollars over the life of the mine. Um, for the local people, it's a wonderful thing. And um, and they, Kevin Reynolds said, you know, Kevin, whatever his name is, the head of them, anyway, he, he good heavens, Karina. And uh, he said that uh, it would, uh, the thing will last 20 years. So I worked out that their 100 million works out to 5 million a year, which for them is really the petty cash tin, isn't it? Wow. And um, and a lot of that is not going to... Welcome, Karina, by the way. Just uh, lovely to see you. <laughs> good morning. Please don't let me interrupt. It's a good show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, uh, well, indeed. And, and a lot of the way these kind of financial kickbacks operate is that they offer mm. things like community health mm. centres and, you know, infrastructure for communities. And I would like to point out... And I will say this until until it becomes general knowledge, there is no other single community in Australia that needs to go cap in hand to the fossil fuel industry to have basic services supplied to their area. So there is no other no other places in Australia where to get a community health centre they need to go to a fossil fuel company to have that funded. It is so incredibly racist that Aboriginal Australia is left with nothing except extractive industries to help supply their basic community needs. Uh, absolutely appalling. Yeah, and, and well, that, let's go to that because that decision was appalling anyway. That is, the judge's mm. decision was appalling. Mm. But last, I, we referred to it last week, but then the Herald Sun subsequently had a headline about myths and some mythical beliefs and things that are holding up development and progress, etc., etc., the usual line. And I thought, well... Apparently, Christian and Muslim or anyone else's religious beliefs are not myths, but only Aboriginal ones seem to be. It's a really good point. And different communities, and I'm, you know, I'm, 
I am myself Gubba, so I cannot speak for any mm. Aboriginal mob. Mm. But um, but my understanding from speaking to people involved is that different communities will describe the same thing differently. And it's like the blind person with the elephant. You know, it's like one person will be feeling mm. the trunk and they'll describe it as a snake and another person will be feeling the foot and they'll describe it as a tree. But they're all describing the same thing. They're just describing it in different ways. Uh, and and very similar. It's a really great analogy that you put forward about the difference between you know um, Christian Muslim. Like a virgin birth is not a myth, but um, a, a, a something in the ocean is. Right. You know. So so the the judgment was inherently a white colonizer's judgment, in my view, and it was one that absolutely fails to pay respect to um, Aboriginal storytelling to um, sea country stories and to the way Indigenous communities describe their ties to their country. Uh, I'm now just waiting to see whether there will be an appeal and what the next steps are going to be because I note as well that the traditional custodians have been ordered to pay Santos's costs, which is an eye-watering judgment. About to say that because, in fact, at the end of the of saying they were going to give them a hundred million over twenty years, <laughs> they then said they hadn't decided yet whether to pursue costs or not. Well, that'll knock off the hundred million immediately. Oh my goodness, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, so I mean, yeah, the hypocrisy knows no ends, doesn't know bounds, really. But the mm. Yeah. Mm, no, that's right, hip-pocket hip hypocrisy. Yeah, and, and the other the un. Well, even could get worse because I noticed in the last day or so, Albanese saying he intends to hold an inquiry into the following that decision into the Environment Defender's Office, so they could start taking action against them, which uh, and they've been playing such a key role in these things. Indeed, indeed, and I understand that they um, have been really knocked around by this judgment. Environment Defender's Office do an incredible job of um, of defending community groups against big corporate players and taking governments to court and they just are able to do so much with so little um, for them to get such a solid kicking while they're representing Indigenous custodians is just appalling, really, really for shame. Yeah. Karina, we haven't caught up with you. How are you? You've sort of settled down? I'm so good. Oh, good. <laughs> well, that took care of Karina for the day. <laughs> I, I was listening to the show on the way, and um, you were right. I was huffing and puffing on my bike. <laughs> right. But um, then he made me laugh, and I stopped huffing and puffing. Oh, so. good. Okay. The, actually, speaking of huffing and puffing, this morning, just as I hit that bloody Smith Street hill, the south wind blew up spectacularly, and I was there. I was puffing into the bloody south wind up that hill. I can't so, believe you rode in today. I thought we decided that it might be rainy and maybe you should catch public transport. No, no, no. I, I didn't, didn't even think it was going to rain. I must admit, it was until oh. it rained. Um, <laughs> now, here's something that um, I presume you've heard about this anyway, but uh, there's a new mob turned up, um, uh, tax senior bankers at Credit Suisse and HSBC, etc., etc. They're, they're setting up their new own bank and they're going to target ultra-rich people so I presume we've all been approached, have we? I can't, Someone's got to target them. Yeah, I, I <laughs> don't remember them calling me, but um, <laughs> did they, you get a, they get in touch with you? Me? Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. No. 
anyway. You'd have to ask Centrelink. Any, any word? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm devastated to announce that the phone has been silent on, on that front. But, um, oh but you know, I, I, I note that it's really important given that banks have not already been almost exclusively catering to the ultra-rich and yeah, attempting they... to take money from the ultra-poor yeah. and funnel it up to the ultra-rich. That's right. Well, they play the Robin Hood in reverse. Really. Absolutely. Good at it. And... Uh, that's that's right. Well, that, anyway, that's that's that one. Speaking of, you mentioned also, I've had a, well, in fact, I, I'm, I must admit, I've had a bit of a tragedy this week. Um, <clears throat> and you mentioned about um, about feet or something a minute ago, something or other, and it struck reminded me just that you you know you've hit a sore spot. Um, <clears throat> at the moment, over five days, you can get bit by bit a life size version of Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a bit every day, and it started out on Sunday, and Sunday were the were the feet and ankle. Um, it builds up to whenever the fifth day is, must be Friday or whatever, and that's when you get the head. Uh, but um, are they going to do that with the well, new Captain Cook memorial statue when they're reinstated? <laughs> that's right, that's right. He's just he's just feet now. But uh, the uh, but anyway, the the tragedy is that I didn't get the Sunday paper, so I can have the whole thing, but I won't have a feet. No, I'm sure someone will have the feet. You reckon? Oh, um, they must be. Kevin, somebody on the internet has (laughs) pictures of Taylor Swift's feet. Somebody does. Right, I bloody hope so, because, you know, I hate to just have the whole thing. Listeners, if you have Taylor Swift's feet, please please send them in to 3CR as soon as possible. And while you're at it... (laughs) Um, why not subscribe? <laughs> it is Subscriber Week this week at 3CR? It is, 3CR it is. relies yeah, on community contributions to keep going. Radical Radio is only radical with the support, as radical as the supporters on the ground. If you would like to call the station on 9419 just making sure that everyone's paying attention, or go to the website www.3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe and give us all your money and give us all your love so we can keep um, radicalising the airwaves. Because you know what? It turns out. I mean, I should have already known this, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I was listening on the way. Turns out it's a really good show. <laughs> I, sound surpri- I sound surprised because Kevin's yeah. always talking us down and talking about our one our one listener and this and that. No, Maybe it's I only good when I'm I not on it. Because <laughs> I missed it last week and I think we only had five last week, but that's okay. Um, well, that's good. I mean, you, yeah, okay. But seriously, for all the programs here, including this one, but it is, uh, the station is so bloody important when you think about Actually. it. Actually. Because we are the only, we're probably the only well, not the only show, but the only only station that talks about these sort of issues. Absolutely. I mean, if you hear them on other stations, you hear the bloody AGL themselves being reported on it and telling us how good gas is. Well, there you go. And um, and certainly every time I tune into 3CR, I learn something. Mm. It's always just an incredible perspective and, and really community voices, you know. Yeah, yeah. So there we are. So subscribe, subscribe. And um, the, the, um, the government also, there's a bit of a kickback because the government is talking about cracking down on on um, on trusts, family trusts, which um, you'll find it hard to believe are used by rich families primarily and they're used to, wait for it, wait for it, not pay as much tax as they should, which seems hard to believe given they don't pay any in the first place. But, well. in, you know, it's, it's, but still, that's, you know, that's, you know I, mean, I wonder why they get so upset about paying taxes but they don't pay them anyway. That always fascinates me. But anyway... Um, 
But, but tax academics have said the use of discretionary trusts in Australia is, is, is at egregious levels, uh, but practitioners have defended the structure. That's the, that's the tax lawyers and the tax accountants. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah, so that, that came as a surprise. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, but meanwhile, poor old Peter Dutton could get into more and more trouble. I, th- I suspect this thing's going to blow up about the way he ran the, the department when he was in charge because we're getting more and more ideas, you know, more and more information about the way he overlooked many things. Oh, my goodness, yes, those contracts. Those contracts to um, refugee um, camps, etc. yeah. That have been uh, smuggling drugs and arms, yeah, yeah. which is ironically the very one of the very um, rationales for the entire Border Force operation is to stop exactly that kind of activity taking place. Yes, it's um, not before time that this inquiry takes place. And, and the only thing that really... I mean, none of that is a surprise to me. Um, but the thing that really blows my mind is the way uh, the ALP has said, well, basically, what do you expect? How are you going to find people who are going to run these centres? And they're stopping short of actually acknowledging that offshore detention is pretty much a it's, – it's a human rights violation – and it's something that they instigated. They got that ball rolling. They have a lot yeah. to answer for. It's really time for them to walk back from offshore um, immigration. It goes detention. way back to the recently deceased Jerry Hand, who started the whole thing off way back then when he was immigration minister. And then the, the Liberals made an art form of it. Of Absolutely. For shame. Uh, <clears throat> but um, in fact, last week, what I found fascinating also one morning last week um, on the AV, on the Radio National Breakfast Show, um, the presenter, Patricia Cavellis, um, she was interviewing Winston Peters and toward the end of the interview she got onto him about the fact that New Zealand hasn't taken as many refugees as it promised it would in, in an, an aggressive, you know, how dare you not take the tone. And I thought, but hang on, we're the one who should be taking them in the first place. We've mm. passed them off to New Zealand. But mm. uh, And he, he was too, I don't know, he's not that nice, I don't know why he, didn't bother mentioning it to her, but I thought, well, why is she being aggressive toward him for not taking them when they're Australia's responsibility? When Australia is so heavily problematic in that area. It's, yeah. it's yeah, absolutely appalling. And, and considering that we have a long history of embracing multiculturalism and we have this... We love it. Well, you know, one of the most um, ethnically diverse places in the world is in Melbourne, you know, Dandenong council area is one of the most ethnically diverse places in the world so and we celebrate that and then by the same token we're not prepared to accept new immigrants to australia it's it's completely it's astonishing to me and then the new immigrants vote 60 percent to reject the original people in the first place i mean that's and and we're prepared to supply um, material support to israel to continue to create an environment in which more refugees will have legitimate reason to leave their country if they can get out in the first place. And yet we're not prepared to accept the refugees that we help create. That's right. And there'll be, and there'll be you know, clearly there's going to be more and more climate change refugees, climate refugees coming, yes. from, particularly from our own region. Yes. And uh, we'll probably, what do we do with them? Put them on another island somewhere to lit sinks. Well, yes, we, we have already accepted, I believe it's the Carteret Islanders, into Australia as legitimate climate refugees. 
Um, they're one of the lowest lying island nations. Mm, they've been sinking for ages. And they have been raising the alarm. So um, uh, in a previous lifetime when I was working for um, a Greens MP, Greg Barber, and we hosted a um, presentation by um, Carteret's Islanders talking about how they were already dealing with storm surges. It meant that they couldn't uh, – there was no f- clean water a lot of the time they couldn't farm taro, which is their staple crop. Mm. They were going under, and this was in 2008, I believe, 2007, 2008, and uh, held this forum in Victoria's Parliament. Four or five politicians turned up. One of those, and I'm going to name check, Inga Paulich, turned up just for the sandwiches, I'm not even joking, turned up, ate the sandwiches in the front row and then got up and left as soon as she'd finished her sandwiches. And and it was just like silence across the parliament. There was so little consideration. And the fact that we are directly culpable as major emitters in the region uh, for the impacts that are being felt by these low-lying Pacific Island nations is just I was mortified. It was absolutely shameful. And nothing has really happened materially since then until just um, the last couple of months Australia has agreed to take um, some climate refugees. They know. Yeah, just we'll we'll move on shortly to... um, We'll go back to Gasbury shortly too, but I was fascinated too. Again, a full-page ad in, of all places, the Herald Sun yesterday, Albo's new vape ban, Won't Work, Will Hurt... And it goes on about the fact that they, because the government's talking about banning vaping, um, and there is a better way: strictly regulate vapes like tobacco and alcohol, etc. It's obviously from the tobacco industry, mm-hmm. um, but you know, bust the black market, etc. Why is Nelbo doing the same in Australia with other countries that aren't banning it altogether, but just keeping controls over it? Will go on, go on, go on. Um, sadly, in the, the same day of the same paper, there's a news item that says every school principal in Australia will receive anti-vaping support from federal and state governments to combat the rising epidemic among children and teens. Uh, this is the same day that the industry tells us in an ad that it's not, no problem. I will be the first person to say that prohibition doesn't work. And, you know, certainly um, wherever we've seen prohibition of anything, we've only seen the use of that thing increase. Uh, and, and this is particularly true of drugs and, and matters of appetite. Uh, having said that, I am looking at this ad that you have brought in, Kevin, and I am wondering where does the ban on tobacco <laughs> products begin and end and how does the tobacco industry get to buy a full-page ad to promote their position as in, in, in a news outlet as if it's some form of news. This is completely yeah. astonishing. Mm. Can I just, would you pass that piece yes, of paper? Yes, I certainly <laughs> will. There you are. Fascinated. <laughs> it's, that's, that is, wow, absolutely something. Bust the black mm. market as if, as if they have any high ground on that. Well, shame on the Herald Sun. But, you know, that, that's always the case, isn't it, really, um, for allowing the tobacco industry to buy a full-page ad? And it, I mean, admittedly it wasn't banned, but it does work. I, I spent a year, you mentioned talking to the Greens, I spent a year working for a mob called, um, well, it was effectively a, a, a offshoot of Bugger Up, which was buggering up the ads at that time, yep. uh, called Mop Up. And we, um, we, had, we ran campaigns against particularly promotion and advertising and, 
We used to go to the ballet every night because Benson and Hedges sponsored it and we'd hand mm. out a thing where at the end the curtain, everything was in flames because they were all smoking on stage. And <laughs> we'd go to, you know, events, the sporting events, and we'd had a... We had a horse with cigarettes out of its mouth falling over all over the place and things. Um, um, but it, it worked. I mean, I, you know, I think along with the whole anti-smoking lobby overall and the Cancer Council, I think it's had an amazing effect. I mean, the, from mm. that time till now, the incidence of smoking has dropped dramatically. Absolutely. If, you, if you're a smoker now, you're a pariah. You know, yeah. and you, you used to see people smoking in restaurants. Now you see people hiding down back alleys having furtive cigarettes. So definitely it's worked. And can I just say, Kevin, actually, that when I was a child, I remember the bugger up billboards, you know, just sort of appearing everywhere. And it was one of the early things that got me involved in activism or interested in activism and helped, um, I think radicalised is is perhaps not the, the right word, but certainly inspired me to get involved. I was so in love with the work of Bugger Up. It was so witty and so on point and so clever, you know. So so hats off to you for your involvement. Yeah, I remember one day it was a race meeting somewhere and there was a Marlborough couple, somebody, you know, sponsored thing. And Keith Stackpole, the ex-Test cricketer, mm. was now, because you know, they, they used to employ these people. He was mm. a promotion bloke for the, for the tobacco company. And he was about to present the, um, the trophy and there's always that five-second gap between announcing him and him getting to the mic to present it. And I was on the fence. Mm. And as in that five seconds, I yelled out, Keith, give the, give the winner a cart and he'll have it. And uh, at that point, he sort of broke down and couldn't go on. Oh, really? Well done. <laughs> Even he roared laughing. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let's take a break. It. We'll come back and we'll talk more about gas. Hi. My name's Pilar Aguilera and I'm 3CR's chairperson. I'm urging you to become a 3CR subscriber. We need to keep independent, radical, dissenting voices on air. Social change doesn't just happen. We need to nurture it. We desperately need to hear alternative ideas that allow us to organise, build community and change the systems that continue to oppress us and destroy the planet. Put your money where your mouth is. Become a member. Subscribe today. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn, we're actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Okay, we're back on, back on, and, and um, look, I noticed a bit of a, bit of a, an enigma, a contradiction, I think. Um, New South Wales government, there was Morrison in attempting to, uh, to win certain seats in Sydney, actually banned some offshore gas exploration around Newcastle area, um, which was 100% against his normal principles. Mm. Uh, and the New South Wales, New, this, the current state government, though, says it, it's maintaining a ban on all ex, offshore exploration, but it's not banning onshore exploration. No, no, it's telling, Um, isn't it? Yeah. Um, They're banning offshore exploration and production in New South Wales. And it's, um, look, it's very much like, um, 
like me banning myself going to the moon. It's not something I've ever done before. <laughs> it's oh. not something I'm going to do again. They yeah. have one. They only have. When the... were you thinking you're going? If you were going, well, uh, I actually quite like this planet. I think I'll stick yeah. around okay. and do what I can to keep it nice. Keep but it, um, save it. Yeah. That's right. But um, there's only one title. Mm. Uh, adjacent to New South Wales waters, and that is PEP 11. There's been a really strong, um, incredible campaign pushed by um, particularly our friends at Surfrider Foundation, and that has popularised that issue, and this is why it was politically palatable for Morrison to um, to seek to scupper that title. Um, and, and I agree, absolutely out of character. Uh, but there are absolutely no other titles in New South Wales. So for them to make that announcement is really kind of a nothing. I have been um, in meetings with the um, with advisors to the Energy Minister last week urging Victoria to do the same, and I know that the Greens have also come out with the same call. Mm. Um, well, you've, I know you've been involved in campaigns down with the seismic testing down in... Seismic blasting. Seismic is, blasting, yes, right, yeah. Yeah, it's 250 um, decibels of noise. It's, that's a blast. Yeah. That's louder than the Hiroshima yeah. bomb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, I have been and, um, and continue to be involved in that. We've just spent... Um, uh, January every weekend there's been an event along the west coast of Victoria that's been organised by Otway Climate Environment Action Network, OCEAN, and uh, and has been supported by Surfrider Foundation, Friends of the Earth, um, Australian Marine Conservation Society, and we've seen fantastic turnouts in rallies and streets. We've seen lots of people rocking up to screenings of the Surfrider movie Southern Blast, which just unpacks the uh, the truth around this epic seismic blasting proposal that's been put forward by TGS and Schlumberger. Schlumberger, by the way, are a bigger company than McDonald's, but no one's ever heard of them. They operate in 230 um, countries and their job is seismic blasting. That's what they do. And so seismic blasting is a technique that is used to explore for oil and gas offshore and increasingly for um, places for greenhouse gas carbon capture and storage. Uh, it is enormously devastating to the ocean. It deafens whales, uh, and a deaf whale is a dead whale. Mm. It um, destroys zooplankton and krill, absolutely just liquefies them. It, uh, it, it just does untold damage to the marine environment. And the industry themselves acknowledge that it's profoundly damaging. So they have a bunch of steps that they propose to put in place to mitigate the damage, and their mitigation practices show acknowledgement of the extent to which this is a devastating industry. Um, Worse, if these projects go ahead, by the time the oil and gas has been located, um, production permits have been applied for, they've gone through their consultation process and they've been approved, the oil and gas isn't going to be produced for another 15 10 to 15 years and by then I would argue that the industry will be so dead so it's all of this damage for no particularly good reason uh, it's what response are you getting from government in terms of saying we just won't allow them to do it well it's yeah so we've all been dragged through this endless series of consultations and uh, and community consultations that involve community groups like friends of the earth uh, and other you know, groups that have an active interest in this ridiculous activity. Uh, First Nations people, locals, the fishing industry are all being sort of dragged through these consultations, which is, look, when I say dragged through, we are keen to be consulted. But unfortunately, 
if all of us unanimously stood up and said, we just don't want this to go ahead, and in fact, that's kind of what's happening, uh, it doesn't make any difference. The best that we can hope to achieve uh, as community, as engaged community players, is to have consideration of our concerns embedded in a rewritten environment plan and for the industry themselves to keep the damage to a a level that they call ALARP as low as reasonably practicable. (laughs) Unfortunately, as low as is not defined in regulation Mm. or legislation and practicable is not defined. Or reasonably, right. So so it doesn't really... Mm mean anything the best that we can do is try and gain as much information as we can from these environment plans bring it to the community awareness and drive community campaigns to show that there is no social license but um, consultation requirements became more stringent um, uh, under the guidance of NOPSEMA and that's the um, National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environment Management Association uh, they, after the Tiwi Island case, the case that they won against Santos um, just mm. a bit over a year ago about inadequate consultation, Nopsema yeah. went back to industry and said, you have to do your consultancy That's when they got better. an injunction effectively and um, Basically. Went, went, went to this hearing that knocked them off. Yeah. That's right. So, um, so now industry is... Um, has standards by which they have to consult. Those standards are more stringent. And uh, and so we are all being invited, everyone who's shown any kind of interest to being invited to consultation meetings, many of which are just meetings to tell us how to engage in consultation. So they're tying up community Jeez, time yeah. for no particularly good reason um, with no real um, out, output that would satisfy the community at the end of that process. Um, so... Industry has led every single one of these meetings, everyone I've gone to, we've had industry players saying, oh, poor community being, you know, tied up in all of these consultation processes and First Nations people, it must be just so exhausting. We really feel for you. We really wish that you weren't having to go and sit in on these meetings all the time. We're doing everything that we can to try and keep this as straightforward for the community as possible. And um, and just uh, about... A couple of weeks ago, we've had the Department of Industry now open up a consultation on consultations. I'm not even joking uh, for offshore petroleum and greenhouse gas (coughs) projects. Uh, I'm not even joking when I say that last week I sat in on a um, meeting that was organised by the Department of Industry that was literally a consultation on the consultation on consultations. I feel like I'm in an episode (laughs) of Utopia. Well, my experience is also that they... They totally control the agenda of the meeting, so that really yes. the the community voice is never really heard. That it's sort of at the edge. You might get to ask one question or something. Absolutely. Uh, this week, I will be launching a um, submission guide and some speaking points for people who want to contact their federal MP and to raise concerns about this process. Uh, the questions I've looked through the discussion paper which includes the questions that they want us to answer for this consultation, those questions are entirely playing to industry interests. And, in fact, the Mm. landing page um, on the consultation webpage for the Department of Industry 
absolutely prioritises the needs of industry over the community. It says unambiguously that when consultation is done well, that it helps to improve the social licence for industry in the community. I mean, it just beggars belief that they are so bald-faced about the fact that they are putting industry ahead of the needs of community and the environment and the climate. And can I just say as well that despite the fact that these seismic blasting projects are seeking fossil fuels that are going to further accelerate climate change, when we enter these consultation meetings, we're not allowed to discuss climate change. It's not considered to be um, relevant for the purposes of consultation. It is absolutely an industry-driven process Mm. and it needs to be disrupted. So we will be uh, encouraging everybody to get involved, to call your federal MP and tell them that you have concerns about the way these consultations are, um, are handled. And, um, and we will have a bunch of talking points, including asking for the right for veto by community, asking, for, uh, asking that these meetings be um, facilitated by an independent party, not industry, uh, there are a number of things that we really have. And this been is where the law about. fails miserably, of course. I mean, even taking example the, re- the recent um, case with the Tiwi Islanders, mm. I mean, they could raise that which the court rejected, mm. but you couldn't even raise the, the the climate impact of what they're going to do. It's just amazing. It's part of it. I mean, that that surely should be the guts of the bloody case. Well, yeah. th- and this is what we have been arguing time and time again. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's worth noting that despite the fact that we're explicitly told that climate isn't isn't a consideration everybody mentions it because of course it's a consideration it's Mm. it's absolutely the end game for this industry and and it really just shows how the gas industry right from the get-go i mean before they've even started to produce the gas just when they're going looking for it they're already doing untold damage to the environment they're already um, behaving with absolutely breathtaking arrogance in their consideration of community concerns and community impacts. Uh, It really just shows the hubris of the gas industry before they even start to, you know, get the wheels rolling on, on production. And, of course, once they do produce, we know from experience around the world that accidents happen. And, uh, accidents sudden, certainly do happen. Suddenly you've got massive environmental problems. And when, ac- when accidents happen way out to sea, we don't know about no, it. No. We do with oil because oil will end up washing up on someone's beach. But if it's a gas leak... These facilities, these um, gas rigs all around Australia, and there's hundreds of them, are continuously emitting methane. We don't know in what quantities because the industry self-regulate, they self-monitor, they self-report. There's no independent verification of the amount of methane that's being leaked from these rigs. But we do know that just one rig that was analysed up in the La Grande Basin Um, that's owned by Santos. It was decommissioned about 15 years ago, or more actually, I think, and it has been continuously decommissioned. So it capped off, no longer producing gas, except that it's continuously leaking methane into the atmosphere in varying levels and has done so ever since the point of decommissioning. So then that means that we pull back and have a look at all of the other rigs, the ones that are both active and decommissioned, and we ask ourselves, how much of a climate impact are they having that's not even being monitored? 
Yeah, and you'd be pleased to know that there was a recent survey by the Financial Review asking its um, readers, who mostly are probably much richer than us, about should superannuation funds um, invest in green energy um, if, in fact, they they get lower returns? And 57%, well, only 34% said yes. 57% said no, and 9% couldn't make up their minds. Um, so you've got 66% effectively saying, no, if it's lower returns, we're not sure we should uh, do it. Uh, um, Look, Kevin, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert financial analyst or stockbroker of any stripe, but I would argue that would you not buy the shares while they're at a lower price sit back and wait for that industry to gain in strength as it is already starting to do. I'm selfish right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, welcome to capitalism. But um, but certainly, you know, there there is a strong argument for getting in on the ground floor and, and... and sitting back and enjoying the dividends that come from an increased mm. share price as the industry gains in strength, as it's already doing well and truly. Yeah. Yeah. And your point, of course, they, they, most, most, when they propose something, they, always, they almost invariably say uh, the environmental impacts will be minimal. Mm. Now, one, that concedes there will be environmental impacts. Yes. Because, but also, then it depends on your definition of minimal. What of is course. minimal? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, look, yeah. they, I mean, they're so fond of this kind of, you know, um, saying vague things with absolute confidence. And uh, gas industry has been called out for recently, say, last year they um, uh, were called out to um, the Advertising Standards Board to say... That the, for, for saying that gas was 50% cleaner. Than what? In what mm. way? What mm. does that mean? You know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's just that kind of straight up... Well, they've got that ad about renewable fudging. gas, for God's sake. Haven't they? Or That's whatever, right. Whatever they call it. Or... Oh, my biomethane and, and hydrogen. <laughs> this is another thing is um, when they were still called Appiah. Uh, we could uh, at the beginning of um, 2020, I believe it was, Appiah's national conference, and they were talking up blended gases in the pipes pipeline. They were talking up hydrogen blends in the pipeline, and you could see that they were doing that because they could see that the gas industry was on the ropes that the distribution network was going to have to be shut down and they were like, how can we stuff a cleaner, healthier product into the pipes to keep those pipes open and running for longer? Um, yeah, well, so they well, were on it as far back as then. Just recently, um, our old mate Peggy O'Neill, no, Meg O'Neill, mm. uh, Meg said that um, that the um, they, that her company, Woodside, considered the global LNG sector provides significant potential for value creation. You'll be pleased to hear that. And again, what does that mean? This is another confidently put vague statement, value creation. I mean, what does that mean, you know? And and it annoys me that journalists don't say, wait just a minute, what does that mean? Can you explain in plain English what that actually does for people, you know, I mean, and, and for the economy or for whatever your me- metric is. What even does that mean? I'm going to do something now we shouldn't do on, on city limits. Cause well, we're... I'm going to interrupt you very yeah. quickly beforehand. I would say, um, Freya, that that is a fabulous uh, argument 
for also subscribing to 3CR, which I'm going to bring up again because not only do we give voice to those who who are marginalised in mainstream media, but also, as we've seen over the past several weeks, the public confidence in mainstream media has gone down so far. Like, they've been exposed for bad, uh, biased journalism so many times. It's so true. And people are turning to social media increasingly to get their news. Mm. They're turning to podcasts. And um, one lovely thing about 3CR is that you can download the podcast. You can always go back and listen to shows like City Limits after they've been broadcast. Um, please subscribe, 94198377 or www.3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Uh, critically important. Yep. I'm sure that I'm sure that our six listeners, our regular six, become millions when podcast comes out. That's right, um, absolute millions. Look, we, let's. I'm going to do as I said something unusual on City Limits. We're going to try and be positive for God's sake yes. and not make people cry. Um, you um, <clears throat> you mentioned the point that point that you reckon that gas is on its last legs. Can we have a positive note? Why you think that's happening, and you know where you think it's going to go in terms of. Well, so the US has agreed to suspend LNG exports. It's They're the largest LNG exporter in the world. So mm. that is a significant and commitment. And the industry's screaming its head off. Really. Industry's absolutely going nuts. Yeah. So that gives me confidence that this is not something that is some kind of back-channel gift to the industry in some way. Mm. Um, I don't mean to be cynical, but so often these things end up delivering into industry hands somehow. Uh, the Victorian government has been brilliant in leading the charge into getting off gas and that is so important because we here in Victoria use more gas domestically than uh, any other state or territory in Australia. The ACT government has been banning gas on new, um, uh, banning new gas connections uh, for a while now and they are removing gas from government-owned housing. Uh, so, so all of these, um, all of these revolutions are taking place at government levels for some governments, but even at an individual level, people are just walking away from gas. You know, in Victoria, we've now capped the price of disconnection and abolishment at two hundred and twenty dollars, where it used to be up to and sometimes over a thousand dollars to abolish the meter. And so now that it's more affordable for people to do that to get off gas completely and that against the escalating price of gas when people go to pay their bill it's really driving people away from that as a fuel source more and more people are embracing renewables more and more people are recognizing that um, they can improve efficiency in their home they don't need to use as much energy so there is this quiet revolution taking place and uh, and the gas industry knows it so, of course, they're going to be panicking. You know, I'm seeing them turning up in comments threads um, in social media. And if you actually click through to the commenter's profile, it's not really, it's not a real profile. So a lot of these are bot profiles or they're, you know, they're um, puppet profiles being used by the gas industry. Mm. Uh it really just shows the extent to which they know that it's pretty much over. And you're saying it's not absolutely essential to the transmission to um, no. to, to, to renewables, which they t- they say we can't do without it. Absolutely, and of course they're going to say that they're they're being they're, they're, they're 
very few legs left to stand on. And, and, and so you'll just see them throwing everything at it. Uh, so the sensible transition fuel transition, line. I said transmission. I yeah, that's, um, well, um, <laughs> using it for, for transmission for greenhouse, uh, for, sorry, for gas power generation. Um, so it is, uh, it is absolutely this incredibly exciting, pivotal turning point. The people are on board. More and more people are switching off gas. That we're seeing the gas industry panic fills my heart with joy because it shows that they can see that it's over. They know that it's pretty much curtains and they have to rethink their business model. It's time for them to go home and rethink their lives. Oh dear, so people don't... People don't just have to go up to Peg's front gate to worry. They're just the whole the whole scenarios must be causing her nightmares. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah, for Meg O'Neill, for Samantha Maiden, for, you know Samantha McCulloch. Me, um, me, I have Peg, no. Yep. I have no sympathy with any of them. It's 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 yeah. absolutely time for them to rethink their business strategy. Yeah, mm. and, um, and and can I just say, nobody shed a tear for the leg calipers or the iron lung industry when the polio vaccine was introduced. This is something that has to happen, and um, and it's just time for them to do something else. That's right. Or when the executioners lost their jobs, for instance. For um, instance. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Look, we're virtually out of time. Joe Toscano coming on next, and um, Karina, you're ducking down, aren't you, to the uh, camp? Yes, who told you that? You told me that. Go Camp Sovereignty. I have no (laughs) recollection of that. So, yeah, listeners, definitely stay tuned to Anarchist World this week and also afterwards to Bunjil's Fire, which we'll be doing an outside broadcast. You're doing the tech work for the uh, Robbie show. I just just come in and take credit, honestly. You you (laughs) tell me I press buttons. I was going to thank Freya for coming on the show, but actually thank you for letting me join you, (laughs) considering I was so late. Uh, we'll get you here next week by 9 o'clock. Next week, we'll air's housing, so we'll be talking to our usual suspects on housing, and uh, we'll solve that problem again for another year. <laughs> and thank you so much for having me on the show. It's always just such right. a pleasure to come here yeah. And, yeah. and speak to your listeners and, um, and to ask your listeners one more time. Subscribe, subscribe, 3CR, Radical yes. Radio, in your head. Nine four one nine eight three double seven. Give us a call right now. We want the phones to light up. We want you to be able to not get through because the phones are just on fire. Um, Good heavens, are we're quick. <laughs> okay, we're, we've got to go next week's housing. And Freya, Freya didn't have a cup of tea, by the way. That was a bit of a worry. No. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.